0: Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. Today is the day of salvation. Amen? That's what the Lord declares. Salvation wasn't, was purchased back when Jesus died and said it is finished and those words endure today, right? The, uh, Peter testifies that there is no other name in heaven by which we must be saved and that is Jesus' name, amen? So we declare that, Lord. Uh, yes, Lord, we, we just welcome that evangelistic uh, thrust, Lord Jesus, in worship. And we ask, Father, that you would, as we declare your word today, you would take that into the, the, the homes and you would bring that deep and drive it home into our hearts, Lord Jesus, today. Uh, your goodness, your faithfulness, your mercy, and that salvation is for today. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Amen. So we'll be in John chapter 17 today, and I want to thank the worship team for facilitating uh, that time of worship. That was a blessing to me. Hmm, we praise you, Jesus. Hmm. Prayer has been given to us by the Lord so that we can bear our hearts before God. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but growing in prayer, prayer has been a growing experience. You don't just do it, or at least you can just do it, but you don't always think that you can just do it. So really the hurdles that you have to get over are just like the religious hurdles, Right? Uh, of do I sound religious enough? Am I saying uh, the things religiously, right? Oftentimes we need to get over the hurdles. When I look at John 17, I look at the simplicity of Jesus's prayer here. Um, If you, in fact, these are the words that I uttered to the Lord. Uh, if you compare this prayer to the prayers that the disciples prayed in Acts, to the prayers that Nehemiah prayed when he was asking God for favor and uh, acknowledging the sovereignty of the Lord, to the prayer uh, that Daniel prays before God, they, they are so different. And I found myself looking at this passage this week and saying, God, Jesus, your, your prayer is unimpressive, like it, it is just not written with uh, like fancy flowery words or anything like that. It is just him bearing his heart. And, and when you pray, when you're trying to grow in prayer, you need to know that prayer is bearing your heart before God. And not just that, when you're done bearing your heart, asking him to bear his heart to you so that you can then pray what is in unison or align your heart with his heart. So I I feel like that's not religious, right? Because all of us, we know how to complain. All of us, we know how to grumble, we know how to I hope that we can learn how to voice our emotion and and, and voice what we're feeling and what we're going through before God. And when we're done, casting those cares upon him, opening ourselves up to him and say, what is your heart? And oftentimes when I pray, I ask the Lord, pour out your heart to me. Pour out your heart to me. And in those moments where I've asked that, he's actually brought moments of revelation and truth that have shattered my religiosity, that have uh, shattered things that, would, that I've built up to, uh, to justify this unity or division, right? The Lord in those moments has destroyed that and, and revealed to me uh, the truth of the matter. And so oftentimes I would just encourage you to, uh, I dare you to ask the Lord to pour his heart out to you after you're done bearing your heart before him. So that's the emotion that I went into this passage with this week. I was like, it's really unimpressive. And I don't know if that's um, like sacrilegious to say to you, but that's what I'm feeling, God. So I just confess it before you guys in him. But in that I can see then the glory in this or the beauty in this in the simplicity of this passage. When I look at John 17, I see it's often called Jesus's high priestly prayer. Um, and when, when I look at this, I see three movements in this prayer. I see the movement, the movement of his heart in three specific places and then that's what we're gonna spend our time doing. We're gonna take it a chunk, talk about what's on his heart, and then talk, uh, t- explain that a little bit as, as I see in the study of the word. Amen? So let me pray for us as we pray, as we read uh, the prayer of Jesus here. Let me pray for us. Lord, we want to be open to you, uh, to what you have to say here. Uh, we thank you that you prayed out loud not to get attention from man, but for the benefit of those who would listen And so this is a great, uh, I'm glad that the disciples were able to listen in on this so that it could be written for us and so that we could see what was on your heart in this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read verses 1 through 8. We're going to read 1 through 8, broken up into two sections, 1 through 8, 9 through 19, and then finally 20 through 26. Those are our three sections and three movements in this prayer. So, verse one. says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. That is the first movement of his prayer. The first thing that I see that is on Jesus' heart is the glory. Glory was on Jesus' heart. Glory in the sense of the glory of the Father, glory in the sense of his glory, and glory in the sense of how that would affect us. The glory of God, the glory of the Son, and the glory in how it relates to you and to me. When you think of glory, oftentimes, I think that our minds often go to like resplendent light, the, the purity of God God exposing His immense and His might, like His His immensity and His might. We often look at that, and that is a portion of His glory, and and in fact, the the biggest part of His glory. That He that, that there is a glory of God that is like light, like when the angels appeared to the shepherds, the glory of the Lord was in that place, it was bright light, right? As in the cloud that comes uh, and and rests upon the temple, the glory of God that rests upon the Ark of the Covenant, the glory of God, these are like manifestations of his glory, the glory of God on the mountain, causing fire and smoke and the ground to shake, the glory of God manifesting God in in that place, uh, being expressed and being seen in these ways. But there's also the glory of God that talks about his character. There's also the glory of God that talks about his worth and his value uh, and his acts. And that is what Jesus has in mind here when he talks about the glory of God. When he says glorify or glorified, he's talking about um, this idea that the, when someone, by their words, actions, and way of living, they lead us to see the worth, the character, the worth and majesty of someone else. So I love th- that Jesus is saying that I want you to glorify your son so that I, the son, may glorify you. In heaven, I, I believe that upon like uh, the culture of heaven, we see it clearly here in this passage. What is the culture of heaven that God makes much of the Son? The Father makes much of the Son. What is the culture of heaven that the Son makes much of the Father? What is the culture of heaven that the Spirit makes much of the Son, which brings glory to the Father? It's an eternal ascribing of glory. It's an eternal ascribing of honor and worth, right? The, the, be, uh, the manifesting or the, the unveiling of the character of God, the heart of God, the actions of God, the works of God so that those who see them may see beyond them. This is why Jesus even calls us into the good works that have been prepared in advance, right? He says to his disciples, he said, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So it's not just resplendent light and glory and like these ground-shaking expressions and manifestations. It's also the life that is lived. It's also the words that testify to this person so that you may see clearly the one who sent him. That's what Jesus came to do. And so when he's asking in this moment, Father, the hour has come. The hour of his death has come. The hour of of suffering has come. He has been leading this. If you look in chapter 12, he says, now the son may be glorified. He's been preparing his disciples all along for his death. And this death for us is like death is something that we should do away with or push back. But Jesus is embracing this as glory because it's fully unveiling what he is meant to do, what he came to accomplish. That the salvation of all, the Jew and the Gentile, would come through him, not just through him, but his work upon the cross, shedding his blood for the sins of the world, so that there would be reconciliation between you and us, right, between us and the Father, to bring us to him. This is, the, the, the hour has come for this to fully be unveiled. The hour has come for this to fully unravel. And there would be, they will be dumbfounded. They would be confused to the matter. And so Jesus spends time in chapter 16 of John, says, hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to go, but I'm going to send you the counselor, the comforter. In fact, I'm going to leave, but I'm not leaving without purpose. I'm leaving to prepare a place for you. Right? So this is what Jesus is is leading his disciples into. The glory that he has to go through is the glory of suffering. But this suffering is gonna bring many to the Lord. I like what he says here. How does does Jesus then bring glory to the Father? If you look at verse four, it, it summarizes it. He says, I've glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do if you're going to glorify God, you got to do what Jesus did. Jesus laid out or understood the work that was laid out for him and he did it to the fullest. So, how come Paul can testify that he became obedient even to the point of death. Like Jesus's preoccupation his only desire, his only uh, thrust for life was to bring glory to the Father. Because by, because him doing what he was meant to do shows uh, the great heart that the Father has for us all. It shatters your confusion about the judgment of God or that God being judgmental. His heart is not predisposed to judgment. His heart is predisposed to love. That is what his heart is. And so I want to encourage you in that way to see that when Jesus Christ did not, when he died on the cross, it was the greatest demonstration of love. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet still sinners, Jesus died on the cross. So what were some of his works? First of all, he says to the father in verse two, I gave them, I used the authority that you gave to me to give those who you gave to me eternal life. So Jesus accomplishes the work of giving them eternal life. So if you wonder if the disciples were saved, at this point, Jesus says they have eternal life, right? Right? Oftentimes we're like, oh, they were definitely saved at Pentecost. Jesus says they have eternal life. So even before he does the work of salvation, he saves. He gives eternal life. And what is eternal life? He says, Knowing the Father. Is the only true God, and knowing that Jesus Christ, the one sent by the Father, those that is eternal life to know in the scriptures is experience to experience the Father, to experience Jesus Christ, who was sent by the Father. And how did they experience the Father? Well, they saw, they saw what Jesus did. When Jesus went proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, he went proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom with signs, wonders, healings, deliverance, raising the dead, cleansing the lepers, opening ears, opening mouths, right? Uh, Healing the lame, making them walk. He went proclaiming the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, with signs and wonders. And ultimately, like I've already been saying, we see that he fulfilled the work of, that the Father gave him to do, glorified the Father by being obedient uh, to even unto death on the cross. And all of the things that led up to it, his trial, the abuse that he underwent, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, and his ascension, all of these, are in mind when he says, I've, you, I've done the works, I've accomplished the works that you have given me to do. He had set his heart in that way. The other thing we see in verse eight is that he gave the words to his disciples, the essential words. Peter testifies that he these are the words of life. So he gives the disciples the words, the words that would sustain them, the words that would dismantle strongholds, the words that would... Uh, reorganize they, their theology or their eschatology, the, 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 the words that would reorganize their, their, their perception of the Messiah. He gave them all of these words, these words that, that were awaiting for someone to, uh, to just come and deliver rather than, than them being used as agents of deliverance in all of the land. Right? So he's giving them the words that are springing up to life. And when Jesus sows his word in the hearts that are ripe and the the hearts that are fertile ground, they always return to him 100, 600 fold. He imparts, he sows the word into the disciples' lives. He also appeals to the glory in this sense. Later on in verse uh, verses twenty, where is it? Yes, it's in here. He appeals, He asked the Lord, the Father, that they would be with him, and that they would see his glory. Amen. So that's where I was, I still can't find it. I don't know why I'm blinded here, but I can't find it. All right, so what is on his heart? Glory is on his heart. The life lived, the words spoken, the actions done that point others to the one who sent him. And isn't it true that creation glorifies God, right? Isn't it true that we are made in the image of God? And it's, I like the short Westminster Catechism. I like it because it's short. And it's straight to the point. And it says, when it asks the question, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So the culture of heaven is glory, An eternal ascribing of glory, Father ascribing glory to the Son, Son ascribing glory to the Father, Spirit ascribing glory to the Son, which ascribes glory to the Father, and everyone in the Trinity is glorified. And we are the ones who are made in the image of God, mirroring him in such a way that the glory of God will be seen through us. And when sin came into the world, that's what was at stake also. It wasn't just that we were separated from God. It's that we are no longer living according to our purpose of glorifying God or mirroring that glory to those who would behold us. And Jesus brings that into restoration. He brings that by putting his spirit in us. So... The first movement is that Jesus' heart, on his heart, is the glory of God. Secondly, what I want to show you in this next uh, set of scripture is that his disciples are on his heart. Look at verse 9 through 19. It says here, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father... As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus' prayer, I love the first thing he says about his disciples. He says, Father, will you keep them in your name, the name that you have given to me so that they would be one as we are one. So his prayer here for his disciples was on his heart for them, is that the Father would keep them. Why would the Father need to keep them? Because them having been with Jesus for those three years was their protection. He stood on guard, and he uses that word, uh, I guarded them, excuse me, in verse 11, uh, sorry, verse 12. He says, he says, "While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them." So this is like unbreaking vigilance. So this kind of, I think, sheds light into what Jesus prayed about when he went off. He often prayed for his disciples, and I'm, 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 I'll just just surmise here that he is—he had been praying for their protection. Protect them from what? First of all, the words of God are in them, he says. And because the word of God is in them, they are not of the world any longer, right? When the Lord deposits his word in you, something transforms in you, something changes in you, and you are no longer part of this world. You're in the world, but you're no longer part of of this world. And the world looks at you as an anomaly, like you are like a weirdo. You're weird. You're strange. The things that you think, the things that you say, the way you perceive life, that is absolutely odd to me who is in the world, right? That's what the world would say. I, I don't get you. I don't get why you're hopeful. I don't get why you're not a cynic. I don't get why you're not filled with despair. I don't get why you're not worried. I don't get, you know, all these expressions, these negative emotions that the world embraces as this is just being human, but for us Christians, we realize that God, for us, the Lord has the plan for joy. Joy is our normal expression, joy. Joy is ours. Peace is ours, right? And Jesus offers that to us. And Jesus, in a sense, was their shalom. He kept them under the shadow of their wings. And he was their protection because nothing was going to happen to Jesus until he fulfilled all that he had to fulfill. This is why when they plotted to kill him, it never worked out. This is why when they picked up stones, when he declared, before Abraham was, I am, the the stones never left their hands to hit him. This is why when they were going to push him off the cliff, he snuck through the crowd and was gone. Nothing would harm him. Because he, want, he would accomplish, his goal and his desire is to accomplish everything that the Father has meant for him to do. And that included keeping the disciples, protecting them. They're strange, Lord. The world hates them because their words are in me. Father, will you keep them? Not only from the world, but keep them from the evil one, he says. The evil one is our adversary, the accuser, the one, as P- P- Peter says in uh, 1 Peter 5 8, the, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he will devour. Like we are targets. We're targets for all of the demonic forces, we're targets for Satan. Why? Because we carry we carry a mandate from God. We carry the mark of the Lord to bring about wherever we go the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus is king. That's what we carry with us. And so Jesus prays that the Father would, uh, would cause them to stand firm and to persevere. You need to know that Satan will demand access to you. We have that example in Peter when Jesus, before he departed, he said, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail and that when you return, you will strengthen your brothers. So Jesus even acknowledges that, that, that Peter's denial was Satan coming and demanding that Peter be sifted like wheat and it was allowed, it was permitted. It was permitted that he denied Jesus those three times. It was permitted that he he was heartbroken about that. And it was also permitted that Jesus would come and restore him. Because he said, I have prayed that your faith would not fail. So in that moment of weakness and denial, Jesus had in mind, I'm going to meet you again at that seashore. And I'm going to restore you, Peter. So Satan does demand to sift us like we. And God allows that. God allows that for for some reason he does. uh, But be, just know for certain that the Lord would not allow you to go through anything that would not strengthen you. The law would not allow you to go through anything that would not turn in the end for your good. We have that example in Job. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. So he says, keep them from the evil one. And he says to sanctify them in the truth. To sanctify is to set apart, to make us holy or set us apart. And what is the tool that the Spirit uses to do that? The word of God. So we don't throw the word out. We embrace the word of truth, right? We receive the word. We, we, We get ministered to by the Holy Spirit in accordance to the word, It's not about your feelings and your emotions changing in the moment. Something has to happen in your heart and that breaks you free, amen? And the word is the only thing that can penetrate deeply into the heart of man. And he says, sanctify them, set them apart by the word. Jesus said himself, I've sanctified myself for their good, for their benefit. So Jesus modeled the sanctified life by living according to every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. That's how he modeled what a sanctified life in the word looks like. Whatever proceeds from the mouth of God, that's what I'm going to do. So his word was given to us for that purpose. So we see that glory is on his heart. We see that his disciples was, were on his heart in this moment. Um, and he also has the future believers on his heart, which is the third movement in this prayer in John seventeen twenty through 26. Let's read that together. It says, I do not ask for these only, but, I also, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be, may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. There's an impartation of his glory to us. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. There it is, verse 24. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So what is his heart for future believers? First of all, that there would be future believers. That this wouldn't end with the apostles. So he he has it, it's for certain. Will there be believers after these 12? Yes. Because of these 12, there will be more believers. Because of my power in them, there will be more believers. Because of the word they carry and the mandate they carry, because of my glory, there will be more believers, amen? And so he says for them, his, his heart is for the new believers, that, future believers that would come, but his heart is for the unity of these. Think about what's happening. The ones that he's sending out into the world are Jews. And where are they gonna go into eventually? They're not gonna stay in Jerusalem According to Acts 1.8, they're supposed to go to where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he has in mind that these two, there would be opposition between the Jew and the Gentile. This is why Paul writes what he writes in Ephesians: that the, the wall of hostility is broken. There's no Jew, there's no Gentile, there's no Greek. They're all one. So Jesus has in his his mind the unity that would come and it's awesome to see this unfolding in the disciples, right? You could see that when the Holy Spirit came down on them, they had like this sense of maybe superiority. I mean, there was some humility in them, right? Because they were willing to to preach the gospel to their disciples but all of a sudden when Peter went to uh, Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10, they're, "Come come over here. We got some questions. Why were you in this Gentile's house? (laughs) And Peter's like, the vision. The vision of the blanket that came down. God said, don't consider what I have made clean unclean. And so Jesus has in mind that the gospel was not gonna stay in Jerusalem or in Israel, that it would go into all the parts of the world. And what is his desire? That we would be one. One body. And how does, he, how does he do that? By pouring his spirit out. By giving all of us his Holy Spirit. His spirit residing in you. We become one body in Jesus Christ. We become one body, the body of Christ, by the work of the Spirit. That's how he does it. And so when he says... The glory that you have given to me, I give to them. I believe that he has in mind the glory of the spirit that rested upon him. That he was going to breathe into us. That he was going to pour out on us. That he was going to invite us into to experience the work of the spirit of God inside of our lives. And it outpouring forward in, in, in different expressions so that others may see the glory of God through you the glory of Jesus through you, the glory of the Spirit through you. So what does unity look like? He says in verse 21, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. The only, so to what degree is the Father in Jesus? That was my question. I didn't really get an answer other than they're inseparable. Inseparable. Like there is, there is this unity of, of, of choice, of will. Like we're going to do this, Father. We see that demonstrated in Christ's obedience. The will, I'm submitting to your will. Your will, I'm unified with you in your will. But also in heart. Like I love you, Father, and you love me, Father. We see this unity of a, that, that, that has an expression uh, in affection but also in action of what we do together and what we love together and what we enjoy, what we celebrate together, there's unity in that. And Jesus is saying, let them be unified as you are in me and I in you. And he says in verse 22 that they also may be in us. What are we invited into? We're invited into an inseparable bond. This is how come, this is how come, when you go and you ask the Father to pour out his heart to you, you can't help, he can't help but dismantle the barriers that you have set that bring about this unity and division. Unity is in the forefront of his heart. Unity is on Jesus' heart for us. What does this unity make possible? In verse 21, we see that that this unity is so that the world may believe that Jesus was sent by the Father. Our unity testifies It is a testimony to those who are onlookers and say, wow, they're different. They don't all look the same. They don't all talk the same. They don't all dress the same. They don't all drive the same. They don't all live the same. But they have a love for God that is the same. They love the will of God that is the same. They love the word of God, that is the same. And God moves in them in such a way that there is no division or hostility, but there's this brotherly love and affection in their midst. That's what the world sees, and what, it, what comes of it? They experience, in verse 23, the world would know that Jesus was sent, uh, Jesus was sent from the Father they would know that the father sent him they would know jesus what else would they know they would know the father they would experience jesus they would experience the father i i really think that we should really consider the things that we divide over and oftentimes like that that's what churches do that's what I was taught in Bible college. What are your distinctives? What, distinguishing, what distinguishes your church from this church? What if we were just known for what we all ascribe to? What if they, they we, you know, I understand the structural stuff, the, the organizational stuff, those are important things, but do we really need to divide over that? That's why I appreciate movements like Together for the Gospel, I appreciate movements like that or uh, the Gospel Coalition. I appreciate movements like that, right? Because they're gathering under what's important. I appreciate the Christian and Missionary Alliance. I think I gotta say that, right? (laughs) But I appreciate that because we're gathering on what's important. What's important to us? Jesus is the savior. Jesus is the sanctifier. Jesus is the healer. Jesus is the coming king. That's what we gather under. And that's what we proclaim, amen? So the world is in need of seeing the full expression of the love of God. And our unity is important. Being protected from the evil one. Having been sanctified by the word, being sanctified by the word, those are important to Jesus. Those are on his heart. Ultimately, the glory of God in our midst is important to Jesus. That's what's on his heart. And so, what is our response? Whenever we hear someone else pray, we give our, we align ourselves and we agree with them with a what? With an amen. So that is our response. Our response to hearing Jesus pray is amen. Amen. Let your glory be seen. Let your glory be seen in us, Jesus. That as we live, as we speak, as we do, let your glory be seen in us, Jesus. We love you so much. We love your glory so much. The world is in need of seeing you clearly. We want nothing but to just reflect your glory. That is our hearts, amen, to the glory of God. And we receive, we say amen. We say amen to your protection, Father. We say amen to your provision of your word that sanctifies us and makes us whole. We say amen to that. And we say amen that there will be more believers, that we will be a unified world, unified nations under Jesus Christ. We will be unified in the name of Jesus and under his rule, we say amen to that. Amen? amen? Amen. Let me pray for us further here. God, we recognize that the image of God was distorted. I just want to speak into, I'll stop praying. I want to speak into that. I have time. Um, The image of God is, the glory of God is why he created us. And we ought to uh, prioritize that. What is a life what does a life living for the glory of God look like? It looks like Jesus. It looks like what he's about, amen? And so I want to pray this over us. Lord, we, we want to be so captivated by you. We are. We are captivated by you. There has been no other love like yours. None of us were born into this world asking for a Savior, but you freely gave yourself, O Lord, to save us. Even before we had any idea of you, you had us in your mind, O Lord. And when we were unable to call upon you to be saved, you gave us the words to say. You opened our eyes and you opened our ears and you drew our hearts unto you. This is why we give you all of the credit. This is why we give you all of the glory, God. You deserve the glory. You deserve the honor. And so we thank you that we are on your heart. Let us hold on to your divine love. Let us hold on and not let go. Those words of this song that we're going to sing are just so dear to me, God. I'm holding on to your divine love. It has been your love that has led me through many doubts. It has been your love, oh Lord, that has led me through many moments of depression. It has been your love, oh God, I'm holding on, and I'm not letting go because you are worthy of that glory, God. In the end, I want my life to count for your glory. When we breathe our last, I want my last breath to be for your glory. This is what we want, Lord. We believe that you're worthy of this, God. Lord, I pray that you would unleash, Lord, the protection that Jesus prayed for in this moment and that you would unleash, God, the power of your word in our lives so that we would be sanctified before you. The world needs a sanctified body of Christ. The world needs a unified body of Christ. So, if I'm going to play into that, God, if I'm going to be a participant in that, I need to have a full understanding of your love. And I need your love to just destroy everything inside of me that arises against you. I call those who are unsaved, Lord, who have not looked to you, to look to you, Jesus, today. Look to Jesus. How do you know? How do you see God? You see the glory of God in the face of Christ. You see the love of God in the face of Christ. His name has been given to us to call on for salvation. Simply say, Jesus, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, save me. If you're at home, you can say that. If you're here in the room, you can say that. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, save me. Thank you for your faithfulness in keeping us, God. And we will sing this song to you as an offering of affection and thanksgiving to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing this song together. into that, Lord, uh, this week. We thank you that you are faithful to us. We thank you that you will keep us in your divine love, O Lord. And we ask that your love would unravel us and that it would unify us and that the world will see that you love them because of how we express or we experience your love in our lives, God. We bless you, Jesus, and I bless your church to walk in the amen of your prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Lord, bless you. Thank you again for joining us. Say hi to one another. You're dismissed. Thank you for joining us online. God bless you. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.